Today is the Sunday after Labor Day. I don't know if you knew that. Or Sunday after Labor Day weekend. I don't know if you knew that. It's uh, the beginning of the fall, and I don't know what that means for you in terms of new rhythms, whether your life is somehow tied to the academic calendar or whether, you know, Notre Dame football is how you mark the days. I don't know. But there, there tends to be that sort of turning page that we feel right about now. And there's also the fact that this is uh, the second autumn that we've entered where we're looking ahead at like fall and winter with COVID still rattling us and uh, affecting our common life together and perhaps feeling a bit uncertain about what this next winter will hold. And I just kind of want to observe like that makes this fall perhaps a little different than others that we've been through. And then there's this other thing, which is, of course, today is the day after the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And I don't know what yesterday was like for you. I know for me, I spent some time scrolling through remembrances and reminders of what that day was like 20 years ago. And I felt a lot of different things as I was looking through all those uh, reminders and remembrances. And when I think about everything that's stacked up on us today, as we go from summer to fall, words that come to mind for me are like words like there's some chaos in the world around us and in the air. Maybe it's just the chaos of you trying to figure out how to get all your kids to all their school obligations and practices, or maybe it's the chaos of current events. Uh, another word I think is fair is that there's like some pain in circulation. And it might be the pain of remembering 9-11, even though it's been 20 years. I know for some of us it feels very present with us, and for others it's the pain of just the ongoing stress of pandemic life. Uh, but another word that comes to mind for me in, in this moment, this particular Sunday, is hope. And hope, I don't, I don't know what your relationship with hope is today. It, it might be like you got your hands on it, or it might be you would like to get your hands on some, like you're on the hunt for it. But hope is a word that tends to matter most when we find ourselves in the middle of circumstances that aren't great, you know? So those words, chaos and, and pain and hope, uh, maybe you have other words for the moment that you're in, but in, in my experience, when you're in some swirling chaos or you're dealing with some pain, it can be difficult what to, know, to know what to do with like Jesus or Christian teachings or scriptures. Some of us, I think we, have, we feel this really natural move in moments like this to turn toward those things because they feel reliable or meaningful. But for others, and I've discovered this more and more in the last few years, for others, the move toward Jesus or scripture or teaching when there's a lot of chaos or pain or when you're hunting for hope, that move can feel uh, naive or a little too simplistic or a way of just kind of bypassing all the hard things that we're facing rather than working out all the hard things that we're facing. And I get that because sometimes Jesus and the Bible and Christian teaching has been used in naive and simplistic ways. It's a way of just sort of like bypassing all the mess that we are dealing with rather than going through it. But the, the problem with that, like the real tragedy of that is that if you know anything about the world that Jesus was living in, you know that it was swimming with chaos and pain and that people were on the hunt for hope in really profound ways. There's a scholar who's recently released a book studying uh, some of the dynamics of the first century where Jesus was living and teaching and healing and, and dying and being resurrected. And one of the phrases that he uses really stood out to me. He said, this is a time and place where there was often blood in the streets. And he means that literally. And he points out, ironically, often the blood in the streets ran the most on high holy days. High holy days when the, the people of God were gathered around some desire for hope. 
for some encounter with God that would speak to them in the, in the circumstances that they were facing. And often on those high holy days, political unrest would also reach a fever pitch and there would be blood in the streets as a result of all those tensions that were swirling around them. And I, I tell you that because I, I think the one thing that, that you could say really emphatically, and it would be hard to argue with, is that if Jesus were naive or simplistic, we wouldn't be talking about him today because his life and his teachings would not have taken hold among people who were dealing with so much chaos and pain and people who were so desperate for hope. I think he would have been laughed out of the room and forgotten. But instead, the, the people who encountered Jesus seemed to have discovered in some way that everything he was saying and doing was urgently relevant to the chaos and the pain that they were facing and the hope that they were looking for. Now, um, these people who were dealing with chaos and pain and looking for hope, they, they found a way of characterizing what they had experienced in Jesus with one particular word. And this is a word that was used by the followers of Jesus pretty much right away. And 2,000 years later, it's still being used by the followers of Jesus to describe like, what Jesus meant to them. Now, in the first century, in the, in the writings of the first century, the language is Greek. And the word that they would have used is this one, euangelion. Euangelion. This shows up all over the New Testament text in, in the Greek. Uh, one notable example is in the book of Matthew, chapter 4. So this is uh, Matthew telling the story of Jesus. And Matthew says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the euangelion of the kingdom. Now, I'm guessing like you haven't opened a New Testament and seen the word euangelion there. But let me show you how it's often translated. There's a couple different ways this word shows up. Sometimes it's translated as good news, which is quite literally like what it means, an announcement of good news. But another way that this word gets translated, and this goes back to the old English that gets built out of the Greek, but another way it gets translated is gospel. The, the people in the first century experienced Jesus, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection as like an announcement of good news, that something is being declared or like laid bare for these people in the midst of a bunch of chaos and a bunch of pain. Uh, good news, gospel. Um, and then in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, right after Matthew chapter 4, Matthew gives us this concentrated expression of what Jesus meant by the good news of the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God. So we don't have to wonder. That's the good news. Like we don't have to wonder what was, what, what was this good news that they were excited about? What did Jesus mean by it when Jesus was going through Galilee proclaiming this thing? Like what's the nature of what Jesus was proclaiming? We actually have our hands on the data. We can actually get our hands on the things that Jesus was saying. And, and that's why for Southland City Church, we're going to spend the next six months largely focused on those texts in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just trying to actually get our hands on, like, what is this good news? What's this announcement? What's this possibility that's being declared that seemed to matter so much to people who were dealing with so much chaos and pain and on the hunt in so many ways for hope? So uh, we're going to teach our way through it, and we're going to look to practice our way through it. And uh, I say this also because you might be the kind of person who likes to know, like, how to get ahead on the homework. There, there won't be homework, but like if, if you want to get ahead on it, like we're, we're just going to be there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, these three chapters in Matthew's gospel, really most of the next six months. And so I, like, I would encourage you, like, make this your own. Don't take my word for it. Like, you can read it for yourself. In fact, if you want to grab a Bible, I think we've got a couple left over there. I should check after the nine. Yeah, there's Bibles over there in the bottom of the shelf if you want to take a Bible home. And you can go to BibleGateway.com, but, but this is where we're going largely for the next six months. 
and I invite you to get your hands on it. Now, here's the trick, though. If you like, go grab one of those Bibles today, and you just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you just heard me say that this is good news in a world of chaos and pain, and you just sample some of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you might be wondering what I was talking about. <laughs> because if you just sample some random excerpts from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it may not feel like good news. So let me show you a few examples. Uh, this is just a, a few summary examples of what you find Jesus telling us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says that to be angry with someone is to be subject to judgment. Uh-oh. <laughs> Jesus says looking lustfully at someone is tantamount to having committed adultery with them. Jesus says you need to love your enemies. The people who are the most against you, who frustrate you, you, you need to actually love them. Or how about this? Next slide. He says, if we don't forgive people, we won't be forgiven. He says, don't worry, which might be like really encouraging. You know, it's got this chill kind of vibe. Like, hey, don't worry. Just like lay back. But the problem is when Jesus says, don't worry, it can have the effect of me standing up here and telling you not to think about an elephant right now. What are you thinking about? Elephants, right? And now all of a sudden, not only are you worried about all the things that you were worried about, but now you're worried about the fact that you're worrying because Jesus says it's wrong to worry. So you're worried about the fact that you're worrying, which is another compounded sin that you're dealing with. That's not very helpful. How about this one? Jesus says many will walk a path that leads to destruction and only the few will find a small gate and a narrow road that leads to life. Does that sound good? No, not really. That's fair. That's a fair reaction to some of these texts if you just kind of sample some random parts of the text that we have there, right? And in fact, some of these difficulties or challenges that are in the text, I think these are why people make the moves that they make with Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So one move that people make with Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that churches make and preachers make and Christians make, and I have made in my life, and I have to repent of it, is to just ignore it. It's just, it can be one of those texts that we just like don't hear about or we don't talk about. You can go to church for years and never hear these texts talked about. And maybe the reason is that we, we're not quite sure what to do with them, right? Other people from time to time have tried to make a metaphor out of everything in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And, and the third move that, that has often been made in the history of the church is that a systematic theology has been constructed where the purpose of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 becomes this is an impossible standard that you were never meant to obey or reach, but it's meant to convict you that it's meant to make you more aware of how bad you are and that somehow that will then bring you to a place where you are open to grace. So that's another move that gets made from time to time. And when I read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and I think about those moves, I, I'm struck by the fact that nothing in Matthew 5, 6, or 7 or in the texts that surround Matthew 5, 6, and 7, nothing justifies those approaches. There's not a clue anywhere in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 or the stuff around Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that we were meant to ignore it. There's not a clue that we were meant to make a metaphor out of it. There's not a clue that we were meant to somehow dismantle its direct teachings and relocate them inside some kind of systematic theology. You can't get that anywhere from the text. And the more I look at the actual text and see the things that Jesus actually said quite plainly and clearly, and then I, I look at all the ways that we, like, work with this text, this feeling comes up, and it comes from a regular circumstance that happens in human life. Tell me if this is familiar to you. Have you ever been like in a meeting at work or like in a family conversation or hanging out with friends, and somewhere in this meeting or this conversation, you say something 
You communicate something clearly and plainly, and you mean what you say, and you say what you mean. And other people in the group are maybe having a hard time with what you said. And then a third party, another person in the group, patronizingly, condescendingly, kind of pats you on the shoulder and cuts you off and says, well, I think what Jason means to say is, have you ever been in that? What do you want to do? Slap him, right? You're like, I am right here. I am capable of saying what I mean and meaning what I say, and I don't need you to translate, and we can work this out. And I feel like that's how Jesus would feel if he was sitting in some of our churches right now. Right? Like, specifically to say, I am right here. I'm in the text. I'm in here in, in presence. And I'm quite capable of saying what I mean and meaning what I say. And I don't need some fancy pants preacher on stage to dismantle that or reinterpret it. I think that's how Jesus would feel. But I think the trick here is we got to get our hands. Oh, all right. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think the trick here is to pay attention to not just like random little bits of the sermon but to hold it as a whole because Jesus teaches this and Matthew gives this to us as a whole. And you got to wrap your arms around the whole if you understand how we're supposed to receive all these things. So today, to get us started, I want us to just take stock of how Matthew gets us into this, how Jesus gets us into the Sermon on the Mount. Because if we pay attention, it's going to tilt our relationship with everything that follows in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and I think it will begin to explain how all of this could actually be very good news. So if you're up for it, let me, let me get you into the beginning of Matthew 5. This is how this whole thing starts here. Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are. Now, some of you might know the rest of that sentence. You might know this text or be familiar with it. Pretend you don't for a second. Can you just like suspend your knowledge of what's next? Let's just hang right here for a minute. Jesus goes up on a mountainside and looks at these crowds of people and he says, blessed are. Well, what does he mean? And what did they expect from this first word of his teaching? Well, uh, let's do a little bit of language work on it. Jesus is not speaking English. I don't know if you know that. So this is not like hashtag blessed, okay? Whatever you think or feel when you see the word blessed are, you got like, to like purge your mind of, of preconceived notions about blessing. Let me take you back into the languages. So Matthew's actually writing Matthew's text in the language of Greek. And in the language of Greek, that first word blessed is makarios. So if we actually got our hands on the manuscript of this text, Jesus gets up in front of the people and he actually says makarios. Well, what do the people think when they hear makarios? Well, makarios comes from the Greek imagination. And in the, in the Greek imagination, these people imagine that the deities, right, the pagan pantheon of the gods, experienced a blissful, uh, divine vacation, that they just sort of lived in eternal, uh, completely comfortable bliss. In fact, in some ancient Near Eastern mythologies, which predate some of the Greek stuff, they actually like, imagined that the gods created human beings to solve a problem because the gods were tired of doing the chores on this messy planet Earth. And so they created human beings as janitors or custodians to do the dirty work so that the gods could enjoy this blissful life, right? So, so in the Greek, you have makarios, the blissful existence of the gods. But here's the other problem. Jesus wasn't actually speaking Greek. As far as we can imagine, Jesus is a, a Jewish man in the first century speaking Aramaic. And so um, we just lost the TV. That was weird. Um, so anyway, Jesus is speaking in uh, Aramaic to these people. And he's going to say to them, um, Ashrei, 
That first word that the, the, his hearers heard when he says blessed is ashray. And ashray is all over their, their sacred texts. And often when they hear this word, it suggests that this is a word for people, human beings, not gods, who enjoy a divine insurance policy against suffering because they are virtuous. Like Psalm 1 is a great example. Blessed are, or Ashray is, the person who does not walk with the wicked, but rather who, whose life is planted with God. And we read all over the Hebrew text that, that when the text talks about someone who is Ashray or blessed, these are righteous, virtuous people who live faithful Jewish lives. And by doing so, they secure a kind of protection policy with God, that God's going to make sure that they don't suffer. Everybody tracking so far? So if you gather up like what the text says in the Greek and what Jesus probably said in the Aramaic, you get this big, expansive promise. Jesus gets up in front of the people, and he says, you are, you, there, there's a kind of person who enjoys a divine insurance policy against suffering. There's a kind of, of life that is so blissful you will never suffer. That's the first word, and it creates all this expectation. And with all that expectation, the next thing that Jesus says doesn't make any sense. Watch this. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, you know that feeling you have inside sometimes where you check in with your heart, with your soul? However you want to describe that, that the thing within us, the center of our being, where you would hope to find joy or strength or will, or resolve. You know that, like that, that, that thing where you check in inside and you would hope that there would be all these resources, all this energy to help you live a good and meaningful life, and then there's those days when you check in and there's nothing there, and it just feels empty. Like you've been robbed of those things. The, 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 the heart has been vacated of, of spirit, of vitality, of energy, of life. Have you felt a lot of that in the last 18, 19 months? I have felt a lot of poverty within me, just a, where I had hoped that I would find like all these resources for living my life, all these resources within for making good decisions, all these resources within for being resilient. And then you check in and it just feels empty. Like, it, like maybe like there's a bank vault in your chest and it's just been robbed, vacated. Jesus says, I am here to declare the blessedness, the, the power of a life that is empty inside. What? Of course, then he goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's that same thing that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 4, where we read that he was walking around Galilee proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you read kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God in the text, one way of thinking about that is like this is God's own life and will. So another way of reading this is to say, hey, you know, you know that poverty within you that you feel? Believe it or not, I call you blessed. I call you eligible for the best kind of life because God is so good and generous that God is actually going to give God's own life to you. And if God's going to give God's own life to you, then that poverty that you, that you run into inside, it's not a threat to you. It's not a problem. We can deal with that. That deficit that you feel inside, it doesn't matter how extreme that deficit is. It's not enough to overwhelm the generosity of God who is going to give God's own life and reign to, to you. Like right there. I know especially on days like we had yesterday, I've, I've learned to notice this pattern inside. I don't, know, I don't know if you've noticed this. 
When something bad happens, what I've realized is before I get to the anger or the sadness or the frustration, often the first thing that happens is it literally feels like, like a puncturing has happened inside. And like all the pressure has been let out and there's nothing left in there, right? I remember one moment that I really distinctly felt this was uh, years ago when the Paris attacks happened at that concert venue. And those shooters walked in and committed such violence in that venue. I, I remember like before I got to the anger and the sadness, the first thing I felt was that puncturing that just sort of left everything empty inside. And so I, I think Jesus gives this word for people who live in a world where there's blood in the streets sometimes. But I also know that it's not always the things in the headlines that leave us vacated within. It's often just personal life and personal suffering and personal challenges that just leave us longing for a fullness that is not there. And Jesus begins this great teaching on the kingdom of heaven, this great good news by saying, even that emptiness doesn't make you ineligible. In fact, what if the very fact that we, that we can be um, vacated, what if the very fact that everything within us can be robbed of us, what if the only reason that's true is that our souls are permeable, that our spirits are meant to be open to, to a flow that can come through them, that, um, that the, the very thing about you that makes it possible for your spirit to be poured out and emptied is also the thing that makes it possible for your spirit to become a place where the current of God, where the, where the flow of God is coursing through your life because that heart is open enough to lose things, but it's also open enough to receive things, right? Jesus goes on, the next blessing he gives is also sort of confusing because he says, the blissful existence, the suffering-free existence of the gods, the divine insurance policy against suffering is for those who mourn, for those who have lost something, and we lose so much in the chaotic and painful world that we live in, don't we? I mean, we lose not just actual lives and loved ones, although that can often be the worst kind of pain, but we lose relationships, we lose jobs, we lose dreams, we lose a sense of safety and security that perhaps was with us in other seasons but hasn't been with us in this season. Many have been struggling with, in the, in the modern era, so many people have been grappling with the loss of a certain mode of faith, that perhaps you were raised up in a certain mode of faith or belief. And there was a time in your life when, it, when you had your hands on it and it felt reliable and it served you. And then something happened and it just like slipped out of your fingers and today you don't even know where it went or how you would get it back. That too is a form of loss. And Jesus says to all of you who have lost something, I call you blessed because you, you will be comforted. Uh, lately, I've, I've come to understand this blessing in a, maybe a peculiar way, but that capacity to experience loss, to me, it's a little bit like a nerve ending inside, right? That knows that something has been cut off. And if you've ever had uh, the right kind of injury or perhaps a, a dental procedure with not enough Novocaine, <laughs> I don't know, you know what those nerve endings do for you, right? But you realize, of course, that the very capacity for pain comes from the fact that we have been given this sensitivity to everything around us, that we are able to see the glory in the things that God has made, that we're able to see the glory in our loved ones, and we're able to sense the glory in dreams, and we're able to sense the glory in relationships because every good thing comes from God and is an echo of God, and so we sense that in all of these things. But my suspicion is that Jesus knows in just these few short words that what he's saying is, 
that the very fact that you, that you turn toward loss and lament, that you allow yourself to grieve the things that have been taken from you, that somehow that, that act of mourning will reinforce your capacity to sense the good that is still here. Because if it's good, it comes from God. And if it comes from God, it cannot be defeated or destroyed. I mean, just at a basic metaphysical definition of God, if it, if it is of God, it can't be defeated or destroyed. That would be like God 101. And if every good thing comes from God, then even the things that we feel that we have lost perhaps have just gone back to God and remained there with God. And maybe Jesus knows that by mourning and by naming our loss, we are reinforcing our capacity to sense the glory that is still here and that somewhere deep inside we'll find a comfort in that. Jesus speaks to the meek. Uh, people really wrestle with what this word meek means, what, what Jesus meant by the word. Uh, one idea that has gained some popularity, although I'll be honest, I'm not sure if it's right because there's some argument about this, but one idea of the meek is that this is a little bit uh, like a horse with a bit in its mouth. And you picture the strength of a horse, right? And yet with that small bit in its mouth, it's been bridled. And it's unable to choose its own path because of that bit in its mouth. It's, um, in this case, an image for strength that is perhaps still with that, that animal but has been sort of robbed from that animal. I wonder if the blessing for the meek is for all who have had their strength robbed of them or their strength bridled. Like maybe something has happened in your life to put a boot on your neck and keep you down. Or maybe you inhabit a system that is intent on bridling you because of who you are or how you show up. And Jesus has a blessing for these people as if to say, I know that you've been robbed of the capacity to take for yourself the things that you need. But that's okay because if you open your hands, you, you will find yourself receiving from God who can give you everything. And then Jesus has uh, a blessing for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now the word righteousness, I don't know how that plays with you. Uh, the original word that we have here, it kind of plays in two directions. In some ways, think perhaps of the word justice. Justice is often a word that we use for when things are wrong around us, right? Like in the system that we have built together. The word plays in that direction for when things are wrong around us. But it also plays in the personal direction for when things are wrong within us, right? And some of us in this season have been especially heartbroken by all that is broken around us, by all that is not right around us, whether you have been paying attention to just how deeply entrenched things like racial injustice are in the world that we have built, or whether you've just discovered that we seem to not be able to get our act together in tackling the pandemic. I don't know how you're feeling about the world around us, but if you are deeply in touch with that ache, this blessing is for you. But then there's all of us who find just in our own life and personal world, we have a hard time getting things right. And we fall down more than we get up. And we're tempted to hang our heads and we're so tired of not being able to get it right. This is also a word for those. And he says, I, I bless you in that hunger and thirst. And perhaps what he means by this is like, if you trust me when I call that hunger blessed, if you trust me when I give you this paradoxical, seemingly confusing picture that, that you can be blessed in that hunger, then maybe you won't fall to the temptation to fill your belly with cheap counterfeit things. Right? You ever go to the grocery store hungry? <laughs> Martin's has done this very, very um, devilish thing in their design because the donut case is one of the first things you walk through before you get to the produce. I don't know if you all have fallen to this temptation. I'll go to Martin's hungry 
And before I get to the checkout, I'll have eaten two donuts before I can get home and actually cook a nutritious dinner. Don't worry, I pay for the donuts still, but I'll eat them while I'm grocery shopping. Because that, that, that hunger seems just unbearable. unbearable. And when, when you feel that hunger, when you are parched with thirst, all you can think about is satiating that, right? But Jesus says, no, I'm actually blessing you in the hunger. I'm actually blessing you in the thirst. And if you trust this word just a, a little bit, ju- just enough, maybe you will abide that hunger. Maybe you will abide that thirst a little bit longer so that you can wait and be filled with the real thing. And maybe people who have not allowed themselves to be satiated by cheap counterfeit nourishment are the kind of people who work and live in the world in a way that creates real justice and real righteousness by, by holding out for the real. And by the way, the real is another great synonym for the kingdom of God. Just the life of God as ultimate reality, not the counterfeit, not the mirage, not the illusion, not the temptation, but the real thing. This is how Jesus begins uh, his great teaching on the kingdom of God. Now, what did you notice about those blessings that perhaps stands in contrast to what we talked about earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? Did you notice there's no, like, striving in them? How does Jesus begin this good news about the kingdom? He is finding blessing after blessing, one way after another to say that God is so good and generous that God intends to give God's own life to you, to give God's own life to you. Not that you have to grasp God's life, not that you have to earn God's life, not that you have to climb a mountain to reach God's life. God is coming all the way to give you God's life. And these are images and metaphors of an open heart. These are pictures of a person who may not have it within themselves, but who opens himself up for it to flow through them because it's all gift. And if that's how Jesus starts this great teaching, then it tilts those difficult things that we talked about earlier, doesn't it, right? So for example, don't be angry, that's a heavy burden to care. But what if, what if what he's saying is, I can lead you into the possibility where you don't have to carry those resentments any longer. Because those resentments weigh so heavy on our shoulders and so many of us have been walking hunched over with the burden of anger and resentment that we are carrying. But Jesus seems to be saying, there's actually a way of letting that go. Or like, how about, um, how about not falling prey to the temptation to see everyone around you as an object for your own gratification? Wouldn't that be liberating? And whether that gratification is sexual or economic or, like, I don't know, but like, to not see other people as just objects of your consumption, as just vessels for your gratification, but as whole beings that you have the privilege of living in community with, doesn't that seem like a better way to relate? Right? What about love your enemies? What if, what if you love your enemies long enough you find out you don't have any enemies anymore? I mean, wouldn't that be profound if even the people who are most against you, Jesus is willing to teach us, able to teach us how to live in some kind of relationship that transforms enemies into something else? What about that narrow road that Jesus talks about? He says, wide is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the path that leads to life. Here's the thing about that teaching. The whole thing about how wide is the road that leads to destruction and many walk it, you know that's not news, right? You don't need a theologian to tell you that. You don't need Jesus to tell you that. You don't need the Bible to tell you that. Just live your life with open eyes and you will discover that wide is the road that leads to destruction. And so many of us find it so easy to live lives that destroy ourselves and destroy others. This can be harder to see depending on how much privilege you surround yourself with because in privileged spaces, we just get better at hiding it, but it's still there, right? You have any idea how many manicured lawns have falling apart lives behind the front door? Like, why does the road that leads to destruction and many walk it? This isn't news, and I don't even think it's meant to be condemning. 
It's just an observation of fact that human beings have a unique capacity to choose the destruction of ourselves and others. And we often get there incrementally. We rarely choose that destination. But one step at a time, we find ourselves living in such ways that we destroy ourselves and we destroy others. So Jesus offers this very basic observation, but then he says there is another road. And he seems to think that he is capable of teaching us, that he's willing to lead us on that narrow road. And he seems to think that we are capable of walking it with him. And if all of this is gift, if all of this is predicated on a God who wants to give God's life to us, then all of this is good news. And we get to spend the next six months and the rest of our lives like simply working out like what it would mean to, to say yes day after day, to open our hearts, to become conduits of this gift. That God would live God's life in us and through us one step at a time. That sounds like really good news to me. Like that sounds like gospel. And that's why we're going to spend lots of time there in the next six months. Now, uh, disclaimer, uh, we're, we're going to have a couple of diversions. So this is me just trying to make sure that I don't confuse you on the promise. So in the next six months, we are going to do a few other things. We're going to do Advent. We'll kind of call a timeout on the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll turn our attention to Advent and Christmas. Uh, we've got a conversation coming up. I'm very excited about it. We're working with, we, we have a resident expert in our South and City Church family on things like science, faith, COVID, and climate change. And so we're going to take like one day and just do a big conversation about science and faith and COVID and climate change. Should be super simple. We'll get through it in about 10 minutes. It'll be easy. <laughs> no, it'll be an in-depth conversation, but I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, coming up, we've got, um, oh, this will be fun. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do a, a bit of a conversation on church and finances and giving. Amen? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's really kind. We got a few, few who are there. Um, listen, if I just said church, finance, and giving and you had an allergic reaction, I understand. <laughs> the promise I'm going to make to you is that we're, that we're going to find a way to have this conversation differently than you've heard it before. I think there will be many surprises in it. And frankly, if nothing else, just come to see me do some really stupid things right in front of you, at least according to the conventional wisdom, because we're going to try to turn some of that over and find some new ways of thinking about and relating around church and finance and giving. So that's coming up. And then less of an interruption and more of a culmination. At the, toward, toward the end of all of this, when we get through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to invite people into baptism. And I just don't know like a better way to clarify that invitation than to spend a lot of time with Jesus and Jesus' good news. That God is giving God's self to you and God in, invites you, if you would like, to say yes to that. And baptism being a, a profound and sacred ritual and a way of, of marking that consent of somebody saying, yeah, that's what I want. I want to be like those poor in spirit and those hungering for righteousness who discover that the kingdom of God is theirs and who get to live in the current of that kingdom throughout their life. And so that'll be coming up uh, after the first of the year as we kind of wrap up all this stuff. Uh, sound like a good path, good plan? Yeah? Before we come um, to this table for communion or Eucharist, uh, one more brief story, and then we'll do that. Uh, one of the teachers who has most marked my understanding of the good news of Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and not just me, like many people. This is not somebody I knew personally. Uh, but through their work is a guy named Dallas Willard. And Willard was a philosopher and theologian who, by all accounts, um, however imperfectly, gave his life in a dramatic commitment to trying to actually walk with Jesus on this narrow road into the kind of life that God gives us if we say yes. And uh, Willard, in particular, wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And if you want to know where I get most of my best stuff from in the next six months, just read it and you'll be ahead of me, and then you can correct me afterwards. 
Uh, but that's one particular work uh, that Willard wrote that really just centers on like, what's the invitation? What's the good news? And how do we actually become students of Jesus in this way? So Willard's a, a man who, um, who, by all accounts, lived in really radical commitment to all of this. And there were a few people who were with Willard on the day that he died uh, at a ripe old age. And they've shared the story of what his last words were. Now, I don't tell this story to, like, make a saint out of Willard or, you know, that can be kind of a weird thing. But, but I think about that moment um, more recently. I don't know why. I don't mean be morbid on you. But I, as I get a little bit older and you realize that you're, you're starting to get to the point where you might have lived as much life before you as you have after you right now, that begins to change your thinking. And in light of that destination, whenever it comes from me, I find myself wondering, like, what would that moment feel like? Maybe you've wondered that. Will it feel panicked or anxious? Will that moment be full of regret or resentment? We can arrive at that moment in many different ways, can't we? But the people who were with Willard when he died um, said that two words came out of his mouth before he passed. And he simply said, thank you. Thank you. And th those aren't the words of somebody who, like, earned it, right? <laughs> those aren't the words of somebody trumpeting their accomplishments or feeling like they climbed to the top of the mountain. Those are the words of somebody who discovered that it's all a gift. And yeah, he did his work. Willard is famous for saying that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So he put his effort in. I mean, he put all of his effort into becoming a student of Jesus and to walking this path. But at the end, his assessment wasn't, man, I did well, or man, I earned it, or man, it was hard, although I suspect he would say it was hard. But his final reflection was the kind of thing you say when you realize it was all a gift. And I suspect that's why Jesus' words found such a footing among people who were struggling with so much being taken from them. So many of their dreams dashed, their loved ones gone that in the midst of so much pain and chaos, he still was able to articulate with clarity and with the force of his life and the love of his death and the power of his resurrection, he was able to articulate, there is a gift waiting for you in this life. And it's not your circumstances and it's not how high you can climb. It's God giving God's life to you and you becoming a conduit of that life, a dancing partner with God in this world. Uh, a benediction. Uh, for all of you who feel a poverty within you, may you not hang your head. May you know that that place inside was meant to be filled with a kingdom that can never be taken. For all who have lost something, whether a dream or a loved one, a vision of your future or a relationship, a sense of safety that's been taken away or a faith that used to serve you but you can't find anymore. May you know that that lament is carried not just in your heart but in heaven. And may you trust that every good thing can never really be taken but it remains with God. And if it remains with God, it is still with you. For all the meek ones who for some reason don't feel the strength to take for yourself the things that you need. May you know that an open hand is enough to receive an inheritance. 
for all who ache for things to be made right, either within you or around you or in the world at large. May you trust that that hunger is sacred, that that thirst is holy, and that it was meant to be filled with good things. And may we learn with Jesus how to walk the good and narrow road that leads to life. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.